Hello and welcome to Write for Your Life. I'm joined as ever by my trusty co-host Donna Sorensen. Hello Donna. Hello. And uh, good week? Yeah, good week. Yeah, it's um, it's really gorgeously hot here so um, it's been very summery. It's also been two weeks hasn't it because um, I, I made a mistake. Yes, you went off on a on a jolly to London Village didn't you? I did and I completely forgot that I'd arranged to leave on the same day that we normally record so we had to abandon it but it'll never ever ever happen again i will definitely never ever miss a week in fact when we move to five by five i suspect i will uh, be required to be a touch more professional not that mike young mike hurley doesn't you know crack the whip he does he's a wonderful sort of employer that doesn't get paid pay me but um <laughs> that, sounded, that sounded like a like a, like a, i was hunting for a tribunal wasn't it but i'm not <laughs> totally it was yeah I mean, I was thinking Arrested Development, actually, as well. Tobias, do you watch Arrested Development? Um, we are starting to watch Arrested Development, mainly because you emailed um, uh, last week or spoke on the phone and said that you'd wet yourself because you'd been laughing so much. Or was it that you, had you been sick on yourself? Or <laughs> I think it was a combination of both. It required a, yeah, a bit of clean-up anyway, yeah. So yes. I am I, I am going to give it a go. I've had you know everyone raves about it. We've watched about five episodes, and I really like it. It's it's kind of one of those things, isn't it? It's not laugh out loud funny, but it's oh, no. That, I mean, there it, are there are definite laugh. I mean, come on, don't don't tell people I've wet myself and then say it's not laugh out loud funny. Well, it hasn't been. Well, you know, you've got problems. <laughs> it, it's not been laugh out loud funny yet, but it's been good. I mean, it's like been really good, you know, really well written and everything. So yeah, I'm we're, we're I'm, I'm at the start of my arrested 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 development adventure. I think it it gets more laugh out loud as you as you get to know the characters well, better. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Anyway. Um, how on earth do we get onto that subject? Oh, yeah, yeah, you're talking about 5 by 5 and being professional. Yes, um, and before that, the fact that we'd missed uh, a week. But it won't happen again, and um, th- and it's all going to be worth it, because today we are going to be talking about two things, um, as generally is usual. First of all, I'm going to talk a little bit about my experience at the Coventry Literary Festival, which I spoke at, or read at, I suppose, um, last week. And um, and then we're going to talk about um, a great blog post by Matt Haig, who um, whose recent novel, latest novel, The Humans, came out um, recently and is uh, doing really well. And he was up until last week, I think, he was the resident writer for Book Trust, and he's been blogging every week, and they've been great. And we're going to look at um, his post that he published on the 24th of May, which was 10 Reasons Not to Be a Writer. And we're going to have a little chat about that and kind of some of the things that he talked about, most of which... Um, are fairly tongue-in-cheek, but um, there are some serious points in there too, and we'll be chatting about both of those things, I think. Mm, yeah. Okay, okay. festival. So I, I had a lovely time. I had a lovely time at the Coventry Literary Festival, but there were three things that happened, or three elements of it, that I thought were noteworthy. Because, you know, I'm at the start of my what I hope will be a long and, you never know, maybe glittering literary career. Um, first novel just published, and I'm just starting to... Um, speak and talk at literary festivals and events and that kind of thing. And I have read out loud in public lots of times, but never really as a as a published author. You know, it's a kind of different thing. It feels like there's a different a different weight of expectation on me. And maybe it's you know put on me by myself, but <clears throat> uh, by me. Sorry, I should never say myself. I take that right back. Uh, maybe I put it on myself. I've done it again. Oh no. <laughs> um, to uh, to perform. And um, 
And it was interesting. So I, I kind of went with that. It's about the third or fourth event I'd done, not really knowing what to expect. I knew that earlier in the day, excuse me, I'm about to cough, <clears throat> earlier in the day um, I'd seen on Twitter the, 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 um, the literally cov, uh, the festival Twitter account had tweeted the fantastic display in the front of, in the window of Waterstones. And there I was, Ian Broom, my name just two below Quentin Blake. Roald Dahl was a childhood hero of mine as he was for pretty much everyone of our sort of generation. And um, and that was amazing. So that kind of thought, well, crikey, what's going to happen? How many people are going to be there? What are they going to expect? What's it going to be like? What's the room going to be like? And, um, and, and of course, I'm a completely, not completely, but pretty much um, in the wider world, an un- unknown author. You know, I'm a debut author with a novel out to, you know, an independent publisher. I, I'm not on the front of the TLS or anything like that. So I couldn't really expect anyone to be there, like a fan or anything like that. Um, you know, and that proved to be the case. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but it was fine because my but point was... was anyone there? This is what we just need to get down straight away. Yes, there were, lots, yeah. there were actual people there. There were around 13 Brilliant. to 14 people there in a room that catered for not many more than that. So it felt nice and cosy. There was, you know, there was me and a group of people. And, um, and, and, and the point is that at the end of my reading, they all bought the book. And first of all, I realise that's easy to do when there are fewer people, but yeah. it doesn't happen very often. I've had other other readings where there have been less, readings where there have been more people, and you generally sell one or two books. And it made me think that sometimes we, we just... Everything's about quantity, isn't it? You need to be, you know, the biggest, fastest, tallest, have the most followers, have the most subscribers, have the most people in the audience. But actually, it's very rarely the case. It's more about the quality of people there. And I thought the quality of people at the, liter- <laughs> the Commentary Literary Festival was exceptional. And um and yes they all bought they all bought the book which was a good thing. So what I'm saying is yeah small small crowd lots of sales. And you you know did you get to chat to them afterwards a bit and all that kind of stuff? I did and 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 that's the benefit of having um you know a slightly uh, sort of tight knit small group of people listening. And they were all you know there was when I was reading you could hear a pin drop it was it was kind of much more it was kind of, it was it was really nice. It was right kind of really kind of intimate kind of intense kind of atmosphere not helped by the fact that i was slightly heckled before i even started reading um really? well yeah a little bit as most i think most a lot of people listening will know my novel's about uh, a guy who's um, caring for his wife who's had a stroke so there's an element of caring and that's an important thing and imp- important to me when i was writing it but i sort of i was introduced very kindly and then i sort of said so i'm ian broom and i'm going to be reading um from from the book and then someone right in the front row and, and like literally like a meter away from me <laughs> um so just before you uh oh, i should have said every, almost everyone uh, er- everyone in the audience was female and and I, I desperately desperately hope i'm not doing them an injustice but i suspect all of them were well let's say i'm going to say 45 and above that it may be slightly higher and um, so a very sort of skewed demographic. And uh, a lady at the front said, um, before I even started, she interrupted me and said, did you know that it's uh, National Carers Week this week? And I thought, oh, my God, I'm being heckled. I've not even started. And I, did, <laughs> I, I, I didn't know. I had no, no idea that it was, it was uh, National Carers Week. So I, I kind of thought I was on the, back put, on the back foot from the off. But actually what it meant was that I had to get it right and it meant that I had to get the, the, the novel had to be right, and it made me remember when I was writing my novel how I thought there are going to be people who read the book who have cared for people who are maybe being cared for, or their parents, or you know, there's going to be people that this situation that I'm describing 
is directly affecting in real life and therefore it needs to be plausible and it needs to be right. And of course my first assumption then when she said that was that she was a carer or that she was caring for someone or you know whatever it might be and kind of it just like... <laughs> I, I, it's it. But I, it's, it's, it's a responsibility isn't it? You know when exactly. you put something down and it's out there I mean you, you do have I mean obviously it depends what you're writing about but yeah I mean people... People depend on books, and they depend on what pe- other people are saying, you know. And they need, they need, uh, yeah, they need to be able to trust writers. To you do, people. and and as and as a writer, and I, this is how I felt when I was writing it. I was it was a constant conflict between this is this needs to be factually accurate, it needs to be medically accurate, and it needs to be plausible. And then once I thought about those things, I also thought, but this needs to be a story. I need to allow space for things to happen that are of fiction. I mean, not not where it's <laughs> where it's kind of inaccurate in the medical sense but it needs to be a story as much as you know not not as much as but you know more than anything else really so that yeah. was the challenge whilst whilst writing it and i just yeah having that that sort of slightly you know a polite heckle uh, made me realize that I, you know i needed to get it right and i needed to read it right as well so whatever i read i thought this needs to be i need to read it with you know i can't just sort of laugh halfway through not that i would but you know it's just that extra pressure that's put on you yeah totally I mean, I have the same pressure with my day job, you know, writing mm. um, all the text for a website that is actually representing, you know, national interest. It, before everything went live on the website, I was just sitting, you know, typing away happily. And then the day that it went up, I was like, OK, this is actually serious, like serious amount of responsibility. But I don't know. I, I kind of do you think that writers in the past wouldn't have worried so much about it because they wouldn't have had so much interaction with their readers. I don't know whether that's. You know, like with everything online, you know, you can write, people can get hold of you by your website or Twitter and all these kind of things. And there's a lot more interaction. But but back in the day, people would have written stuff and then sent it out, you know, into the world. Maybe not got much feedback. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I don't know. It does. I, I do wonder whether people are stifled more by the fact that there is more exposure to, to criticism, I suppose, now. You yeah. Know, they didn't have Amazon reviews, for example. 10 years ago or maybe they did but 15 years ago um yeah, i don't know maybe, maybe i mean it, uh, it is i mean certainly uh, when it comes to writing something else i know that's probably an entirely different episode but the pressure of writing something new uh, once something's already been um well hopefully well received the kind of the pressure is to make it as good as and that's because people have read it but i mean that's kind of not the same thing i suppose oh no but i mean yeah i know exactly where you're coming from I think that sounds really, really nice. And, you know, when I was um, living in Ireland, I worked at the Irish Writers' Centre and I organised a lot of literary events, a lot of readings. Um, And this thing about, you know, trying to get the numbers in through the door, that's, I guess that was the ultimate concern. What you wanted was you wanted seats to be filled. And as long as you had the right kind of expectation about roughly how many people there would be, it would be okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Is if you if you were organising a reading and you know you put out a hundred chairs and then there were ten people there, it would have been a disaster. But if yeah. you kind of got a sense that you know, let's just put out this many chairs and and you know hopefully most of them will be filled, then then often those were the best kind of readings. If that you know the room wasn't packed to the rafters, it's exactly as you were saying with the the festival. Um, we did one with Seamus Heaney and John Banville, and literally people were almost collapsing from heat exhaustion at the back because there were so many people crammed in and you know lights and people were filming from the corners and you know you could barely even see them the people on the edges couldn't hear very well and um 
I know that it was a great thrill to be part of it and to be in there, but you know, it was it was a different kind of experience to just having a writer right in front of you and, and asking them questions afterwards and you know, getting to know them, I guess, a bit. Absolutely, and um, I kind of I, I the third the third thing I wanted to talk about is is ties in with that, and it's about the atmosphere that you can create, and it is hard to get people into the door to a to um, a, a, a literary reading or a, you know a spoken word night. Um, unless they have the opportunity to read themselves, that's what usually gets people through the door. Um, and of course, it isn't like that when you go to see. Generally, when you go to see um, an event at a festival or a, you know a published author read, you kind of you're there to see them. And it's not quite as sexy as going to the premiere of Mission Impossible Eight or anything like that. Um, and 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 also, people don't really know what to expect, and it's almost like you feel. Well, I've I've read lots of times, and something happened that. Um, that I wasn't expecting and has never happened to me before. And it kind of made me um, realise the effects that, or the power that actually spoken word can kind of have. So mm-hmm. I, I chose, and, and I generally do, so the novel um, is a, you know, a relatively sombre affair in many ways because of the subject matter, but there are lots of kind of dark humour in there as well. So they tend to be the passages that I read out, the slightly funnier ones, because you know you can build up a rapport with the audience, they can laugh and and it's a bit easy to read, it's quite light, those pieces are slightly shorter, so they kind of make sense on their own, they're contained. And I don't know why, I decided to um, um, I, I decided to read a passage that I'd never read before, and it's very short, it's only a couple of uh, pages, and it, it's the bit about, um, it's quite a serious bit, it's a bit where Gordon, the narrator, is describing the system that he and his wife Georgina developed for her to communicate with him when she was unable to speak because of her stroke. And it's not sentimental or anything like that it's just quite a matter of fact kind of description of what they do um and and um there's a couple of lines which i guess are slightly heartstring pullingy and uh, and I, would, I i found it hard to i found it hard to read it it was weird i kind of got halfway through and this sounds like you know extremely sort of arrogant but um it took me by surprise as much as anyone else. I got halfway through and I realised I was slightly choking up. And I thought, <laughs> I know, I know, well, let me finish. <laughs> and, and I hadn't read it out in public before. And the, part of the reason I was choking up was because, um, as, again, as I think as some people know, I, I, the, I, hadn't had, I haven't had anyone who's had a stroke in my family. But after the novel's written, everything was finished, everything was written. My auntie um, passed away um, from... She didn't have a stroke, but she had a brain tumour, and a lot of the symptoms were the same. So it was a bit weird that I'd written this book about all these different things that can happen to a person, and then it happened to my um, auntie afterwards. And I hadn't really read this passage out, out and, and, and you know she didn't have a system for communicating. But I, halfway through, I just started thinking about it. I thought, bloody hell, this is... Uh, I'm struggling here. and. Yeah. Also, as I was reading it, I realised that there was a couple of people in the audience that were struggling as well. And because I just, you know, as you, when you read, you do kind of, you read a bit and then you try and look up and engage and that kind of thing. And I realised that there was genuine tension in the room. And, um, and the, the line that I struggled on, and I'm going to be paraphrasing myself slightly, but it's something along the lines of, um, um, he, sh- he shows, yeah, he shows, um, he's using photographs to try and show a reminder of different people. And he says that um, I, I never showed her pictures of me in case um, she forgot who I was, basically. Um, that is written better than that, but that's the gist. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I kind of, like, choked a little bit on the, on the sentence. And by the time I got to the end, I kind of stopped reading, and there's this absolute silence in the room. 
and no one clapped, no one really said anything, and I kind of just had to, you know, left it a few seconds, and I kind of had to go, Sue! <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and I guess what my point is, you kind of, you don't really, well, two things. First of all, you don't really know the effect that your writing has on a person, because you generally, when someone reads your book, you're not sat there watching them read it. And and also, that's kind of the power of spoken word, and it's why you should try and do as many event, events as you can, published or unpublished, get to a spoken word night, because you, your work takes on a con- completely different context, and seeing an audience react to something you've written is... It's crazy. It's like, it's such a different thing, and it really caught me off guard, and... Um, and it was actually supposed to be the last thing I was going to read, but I felt like I had to go back and read something about diarrhoea afterwards just to make sure <laughs> lighten the tone. Yeah. Oh, it's, it, it, you know, you can't beat it being mesmerised by somebody reading writing that just kind of speaks to you. I, you know, the first time I had that when I was sitting in an audience and I heard that, I was like, this is just so incredible. You don't, you don't get this kind of thing from films. I mean, no matter how amazing a film is, there's just something so personal about it mm. and it doesn't have to be something that's massively you know depressing or sad i remember watching a guy called matt black a poet read it words aloud and he did a he did a, a a performance poem i think it was either i can't remember he did he did several it was either the one about a sheep or the one about curry and it was such a silly poem but beautifully written and you know perfect uh Perfect, perfectly read, you know, fantastic diction. He was pulling silly, doing silly actions as he was doing it, and everyone was absolutely captivated, just completely blown away by it. And um, and um, yeah, it's just yeah, it, it's a powerful thing this writing business. And um, and I hope that didn't sound massively cocky because you know it, it was the reason I say it is because I didn't expect it. And I think there are lots of things writers are naturally, as we're about to talk about, naturally kind of down on themselves, and <laughs> I think yeah. mostly. And sometimes, you know, you need to think, actually, what you've written can is powerful, it's important. Totally. Yeah, and getting the chance to see it, I mean, you know, that's that should be one of the benefits, isn't it? If you've created something, to be able to to take it out there yourself as well, and not just put it on bookshelves, or someone else put them on bookshelves. Indeed. Um, I, um, I went to a poetry reading once um, by a fantastic poet um, who had a, a, well, I don't know whether it's a stammer or a stutter, but they had great difficulty reading their poetry and what they decided to do was because it's such an important thing to actually be out there presenting your work orally to people um he recorded himself reading his poetry at home um just in a calm space where he could get through it without any kind of problems whatsoever and then at uh, at the launch of his book where where i was he um they played it um just from a cd player you know and it was in a it was in a, a church hall and it just kind of echoed up to like the rafters and it was so powerful. It was unbelievable. And it almost was like more, mm. you felt like there, there was more impact because he was also standing there at the front, listening to himself being played to us. Mm. Um, it was, it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. That sounds great. Yeah. So there, you know, anyone can get out there and, uh, and um, yeah. And see writers. You just got to find out where they are and go and see them. Eh? Absolutely. And there's loads of events. There are. It's, it, spoken word is very popular. Yeah, definitely. Find your local listings. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, before you finish off about the festival, you know, yeah. I've got an important question about it. Okay. Did you see the Fonz? Did I see the Fonz? Yeah. Was he there? Well, I've been looking at his web, uh, the, uh, the festival website and it, 
sure as hell looks like Henry Winkles. Winkles? <laughs> Henry Winkler. Either way, it's a silly name. Yeah. Do you not see it? Do you not see that he was there? Uh, no, what was he doing? Was he there? He might, maybe, maybe he was one of the uh, women over 50 that were in my audience. I didn't notice. <laughs> well, he does look a bit that way now. Yeah, totally. Um, well, it sure looks like him. I'm, I, I'm Googling, and I never thought I would type this Google search, Henry Winkler, Coventry. Yeah, do it. Uh, Henry Winkler, Fonz actor, Henry Winkler. Sale for launch of this, literally. But my, but my, he's, well, look at that. And how mad that we started with Arrested Development, and now we're back there again, because he's in it. Henry Winkler. There you go. So Good I was not only on the li- me, Quentin Blake, and the Fonz. That's it. The big three. Dream team. So, ten reasons not to be a writer. Talk me through it. Well, I mean, there are, it's actually stuff that you would probably sit down if you had to make your own list. I reckon you'd probably say the same kind of things, you know. Um, the one that stood out for me was loneliness. Mm. I mean, the, the, this is Matt Haig talking about, you know, he loves writing and he's always um, talking about the wonders of writing. But actually to sit down and say, hang on a minute, there are, you know, 10 reasons that you don't need to actually be that jealous because, you know, it's difficult. Um, and uh, loneliness was one that I thought about because I was thinking about it. If you got to this, st- I'm not at the stage where I, you know, earn enough money to just write for myself like that and to be at home writing and I was wondering whether I would actually ever want to be at that stage because I don't know I just I can't really imagine just being at home writing I mean I know that you do events and you know you have all sorts of um, public engagements and responsibilities and things like that if you're lucky enough to be in a situation where you can earn enough money just to write but I don't know I, I just feel like I I would go a bit mad don't know about you well I would like more time to spend on my own than I have now because of, you know, little twins and full-time job and all that kind of thing. Um, I, would, I, w- I would like more time to be alone to write than I have now. But I've had it the opposite way for a couple of months and I, that was while I was quite near the start of writing Ace Frangelica. It was 2005, this is the summer of 2005, which is important for a reason I'll come on to. And um, I took two months off work, um, sabbatical. Imagine that, sabbatical. I can't imagine doing that now. But for some reason, I decided I could afford to have one, and I had to go and write the novel. And I thought I was going to finish the novel. And what, like, there was absolutely no way that I couldn't get through uh, the remaining forty or 50,000 words in two months. Um, I, was, I, I moved down to Bath, and I was living with a friend for a couple of months. He was doing up his house, so he said, yeah, just come along, you can have a room. And... Um, Instead of writing 50,000 words, I wrote about 10,000 words. And um, for the remaining time, I found myself watching England v Australia play in the Ashes. This is at cricket, for those of you who uh, don't know much about cricket. <laughs> and um, and it was kind of the, a wonderful lost summer, but I just had way too much time on my hands. There's no way that I found it very difficult to sit and write nine to five. And um, and and it was too much. The the, the 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 vacuous open space I created was way too much. I mean, I wasn't necessarily lonely because I had someone else living in the house with me who was like sort of doing things with a hammer. Um, but um, but if anything, having that amount of time, it gave me the space to realise how hard it is to write a book, and um, how much more uh, how, how how it wasn't going to be quite as simple as just give yourself some time to be alone. 
because that's okay. not how it works. Have you ever worked from home, like as a job? Yes. yes. And were you motivated to do those kind of hours for what you were doing there? I'm just mean nine to five stuff. Well, the difference, I mean, yes, but that's because I was getting paid for it and kind of if you don't do it, then someone knows and tells you about it. The difference ah. with being a, a, um, an author or you know a writer of fiction or even non-fiction, though it's slightly different, um, is that generally the money comes afterwards, so you're kind of <laughs> you're not being paid to do something there and then. You certainly don't have someone unless you're right near a deadline checking up on you to see how you how you're getting on, and um, it's it's far more self-propelled um, and far more. Um, you know, it has to come from within. You have to motivate yourself. You have to. Well, I've said this before. You know, to finish a book, to finish a novel, whether it goes on to be published or not, you really have to care about it because there are going to be many times where just kind of being sort of interested or just being good at it is um, is not enough. You have to really care to want to get to the end. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, I know what you mean. It's about kind of finding the balance of enough time where you can go into your own space. But but I guess for me, I would. I don't know, I think I, I I need not just people, but I guess you need to go out and get experiences as well to write about, don't you? So I doubt anyone just sits on their own locked away entirely while they're writing something. They must have to do other things as well. No, and most writers have some sort of other job because generally it doesn't pay to to um, to, yeah. to just write fiction all day. There's very few authors where, who are lucky enough to have that uh, position. So most writers do have some sort of other job. I don't. I don't know if they all have full time jobs like I do, but I suspect a lot do. Yeah, totally. Um, so uh, other things on the list were included things like bad back. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you were just kind of sitting hunched over the same position entirely. Yes, it's quite a funny line. This is why Margaret Abbott has to be winched everywhere with the aid of a helicopter. <laughs> um, yeah, not yet, but uh, I'm sure we've got that to look forward to. Um, but then the biggie, I guess, that a lot of people have talked about. I've just realised I keep saying I guess, and I'm going to stop saying it. You shouldn't guess at things. You should be more assertive. Uh, yes, I absolutely know what you're saying, and I'm not going to guess anymore. Um, depressed. Mm. Depression. Writers, um, it says here, tend to be some of the saddest people in history. And oh, actually, that links in. Did you see the, um, the magazine spread that was uh, out this week? Vice magazine. Did you see about suicide spread? No very controversial they pulled it actually because they, they obviously they got so many complaints about it it was um, a spread about female writers throughout history that have killed themselves and they actually had models posing in like for example in front of ovens or wading into rivers with rocks in their pockets what yes um so yeah that's ridiculous was, i know what was it um i've just got to try and remember what it was called now Last words. That's what it was called. Hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, Matt Haig talks about the fact that you know there is a long tradition of of writers struggling with the happy side of their brain not being as strong as the uh, sad side. He does. I mean, he is again. He is. He's saying this. I think it's sort of tongue in cheek, but with a fairly serious point. Because I think there is a perception that all writers or uh, kind of lock themselves in a room and, you know, they sit on their own and are depressed. And, of course, that's not necessarily true, but it is. <laughs> but it's true. There is a history of um, of depression um, with well-known, um, you know, well-known, well -known, I says, but, you know, very talented, successful authors. Yeah. But... Um, that's a whole other thing, and it? We could talk about all the stuff about create... I mean, there was, yeah, 
there was, I did read an article about it recently about creative, the creative brain. Um, and yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but you're not depressed, are you? I don't think so. I think I'm just, um, um, uh, infinitely sad. <laughs> you just write sad books. I do well. Again, I posted something on YouTube. I, I'm being very self-referential. It's like I've got my own personal link list to all my own stuff in this podcast. I'm sorry. Um, I, I, well, I should stop it. I'm just, I'm just passing it back to you, aren't I? All the time. I should stop giving you all this material. Honestly. I know. I'm sorry. This is. This is uh, it, it won't happen again. Um, but I'll do it now anyway. Depressing books. So a lot of people have described my book as depressing. So even even the positive review recently described it as. Um, thoroughly depressing but a great book nonetheless and it's kind of the idea of it's not a it is a, the idea of a depressing book it's the wrong the wrong word is basically what i was saying in this video it's the wrong word you know something is sad it can make you feel sad but it doesn't make you feel depressed generally it doesn't make you sort of want to it's not doesn't doesn't literally make you your the chemicals in your brain sort of change formation it's kind of things are sad and they affect you in a certain way and if you don't like books that have got sad endings or 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 a kind of challenging in some way or difficult to read then don't read them that's fine you don't have to read them but it doesn't make you know i just think depressing is the wrong word yeah quite um <laughs> so other things on the list uh just to go through them financial uncertainty is another biggie yeah i mean that is the best reason to not be a writer i think well, <laughs> but that is, that's that's not true but it, well, it's uh, sort of true but it's kind of it depends well, this what idea that of... people get paid once a year. Yeah. I, I just, it just seems... Well, twice, twice a year. Oh, twice a year. Yeah. So, well... Or not at all, mostly, I'd say. Probably most, most writers do stuff, don't you think, just, you know, because they're like, oh, no, I don't mind you, yeah, I'll do this for you. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, the way this is, you know, probably, again, another episode, but the, the, there are lots of reasons why being an independent author and self-publishing kind of makes sense you know because you do get paid quite quickly and you do have control over how you get paid and and um and um and you know you have that direct contact as someone is almost with the aid of paypal or something else quite literally giving you money for your book there is no middle organization or or anything like that so kind of it does sort of make sense and i can see why people do it and i can understand why authors get frustrated with the industry and how slow it is and how slow you are to get paid um but i guess you have to want you have to want to write for more than that totally i remember when i got my first check for a poem being published um and um i can tell you how much it was for it was for 20 quid nice and i was like it was just like it was ridiculous it was 20 quid like I could go out and buy myself a lollipop or something with it you know but it was just it was amazing to actually that somebody had said here go and buy yourself a nice lollipop for that poem just <laughs> that he wanted to do it and I was happy about it uh, but certainly you know I mean it's not but isn't that because it painful. feels like it doesn't feel like work it feels like getting paid to do something that you quite enjoy <laughs> totally I was like look at this they paid me to do what I'm like doing I remember so, um, I re sorry, I've interrupted again. No, no, I was finished. Um, <laughs> I, rem I, I used to play football. I used to be quite good until I was 16. I think I was at my peak when I was maybe 13 years old. Um, and I, I played for a semi-professional football club 
for one season when I was 16 years old and I played for the reserve team where you don't get paid. But I was asked to go to the professional team, sorry, the, the, uh, the first team, for one game. And I thought, this is it, I'm going to get paid for playing football. That's just ludicrous. How can I get paid for playing football? And um, I didn't get onto the pitch. Um, I was an unused substitute in a 1-1 draw and I had to travel... It was in Workington, which is in the very north of England, and I had to travel six hours there and six hours back on a coach. And um, as it happened, I'd been booked the previous week, which is the only time I've ever been booked in my footballing career, um, I think. And I got booked, which means that I was fined £8. So <laughs> instead of actually taking that £8 off me and giving me my full wage, they just deducted the £8. And as it worked out, I earned a pound for every, for, for every hour that I travelled on a coach. Oh, oh, OK, I thought you meant a pound. To, well, no, I'm talk, I, I got paid £10 <laughs> for, <laughs> for an, an hour for every... every uh, a pound for every hour that I travelled on the coach. And um, and um, and when I got there, I didn't actually do anything. Uh, but you got to tell people that I got paid. To go exactly, to and I said, woohoo, as well. <laughs> oh, it's so sad and it's tragic, actually. It is a bit. We don't have higher expectations, but... You know, the other thing that you said you wanted to talk about previously, just to uh, finish off, was uh, how many comments that this blog post got. I mean, Matt Haig's post do get lots of comments. It's really his uh, his tenure um, uh, with Booktrust was um, as the resident writer uh, blogger was really popular. They were good. It's a really good blog posts. Yeah. Um, but this one struck a chord. You noticed? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's just you know we were talking before about the fact that you know blog posts. Some very rarely get comments at all and I was just going down and I was like my god I mean there's a lot obviously they're just saying awesome this is absolutely great but um but you know it's it's funny isn't it when you read and there are some people that are just like now listen here you're not encouraging young writers and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff and I just think oh you know the internet such an amazing thing but you just write something and you've got the entire world there looking at it but it's not often that you realize you have because people don't comment but um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of comments. I thought. Yes, I mean, I think a lot of people didn't quite see the <laughs> see the joke. Really, I mean, a lot. He's, I could say that his his tongue is very firm in his cheek with all of these posts. It's quite clearly supposed to be funny, um, yeah, and some but, people just but, don't get it. It's funny, but it's it's you know it's it's true as well, isn't it? When he says you know a writer gives up. 12 months or whatever of his life to something his or her life and then the only thing they've got to show for at the end is the one star Amazon review written by someone called Jesus Rainbow Unicorn yeah. I mean, it's uh, that's what it's like it is it's, it's true it's true <laughs> it's true um, yeah you're right it's a great blog post though and people should go and read it it's, um, I'll put a link to it in the show notes along with anything else that we talked about which feels like quite a lot this week yeah great yeah I think that's it. I think that I think we're over our thirty-minute mark by um, by uh, a little way. Oh dear, sorry. Never mind. <laughs> we, see you we, next week, can I? See you next week. Yeah, but first, where the hell can we find you on the internet? Have you changed your Twitter handle yet? No, because I don't know what to change it to. I can't have. Yeah. Anyway, that's another story. We'll talk about that next week, eh? Don <laughs> underscore S underscore Sorensen. Okay, and I am Ian Broom. That's I A I N B R O O M E at Ian Broom on Twitter and you can find 
my internet site at ianbroom.com. Oh, and I should mention Very Meta. I was supposed to mention this at the start, but I started another podcast. It's kind of, for those of you who've listened regularly, you may know that I, I did a podcast called Chat Broom, and it's basically just like a behind-the-scenes of a writer type thing. Um, I also talk about sort of web culture and technology and that, that sort of thing two or three times a week. Um, it's on SoundCloud. Uh, you can find all the details at verymeta.net or soundcloud.com forward slash verymeta. And um, I've changed chat room. That's now called Very Meta. And um, it's good. I think it's going to be good. I quite enjoy doing it. It's easy to do um, and doesn't take me long. And hopefully the little tidbits of audio are uh, interesting too. Oh. So it really has been all about me this episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that's fine. You're allowed to do that every so often. Yeah. Okay. Speak to you soon. Yes, yeah, see you. Bye. <laughs>